All right, now that the trade deadline is passed, I wanted to bring back Dylan Murphy. The Mastiffs have been clamoring on Twitter, Dylan, for your return. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we we got a lot of stuff to get to here. And where I wanted to start is in talking about how the Wolves are going to look without Jimmy Butler. Now, news coming down after he suffered that injury over the, the weekend. He is to miss between four to six weeks. Um, I've got a little bit of skepticism, either that A, it's going to be that long, uh, that it could be longer, or B, that if he comes back sooner, that it's a a great idea. We've seen that guys who really push to come back from those type of injuries before the playoffs, before what would normally be a six to eight week rehabilitation for everything that we know about the meniscus surgery that he's having. It'll probably be a trim rather than a repair. If they're talking about that type of timeline, you go back to like Brandon Roy, men of world pieces guys who came back on a short timeline not quite as short or a lot shorter than we're talking about here with butler those guys came back in like two three weeks but nonetheless not something you necessarily want to push but uh, we want to focus more here on just what they're going to look like without butler and so dylan what do you take away from like how they've looked without butler on the floor here and what do you see as the biggest obstacles they're going to need to overcome without him yeah so i mean the biggest thing obviously is it's going to have to be carl anthony towns picking up a, a huge offensive load moving forward here and you know we've seen this year he hasn't really he's taken a back seat sort of to butler and wiggins but you know with that void now with butler he's going to have to uh you know take up the mantle and i think mostly that's really just going to be him on the block just because, you know, maybe they're not getting as much explosiveness out of their point guard play. So in pick and roll, that kind of limits what he's able to do. Um, and then really it becomes, okay, what actions do you run out of, you know, uh, the left block or the right block? You know, if we punch it inside, what are we doing then? And if you really look at his his post-up ISOs on the season, they just they tend to do what uh, teams have done traditionally, which is you dump the ball inside and then the post feeder cuts through the weak side and then you have that sort of uh, single side ISO with everybody else on the weak side. Um, Um, And I think they're going to have to sort of vary up how they get him the ball in the post and get a little more creative with those actions because now there's really less punishment for them to throw doubles at him, uh, both on the catch or after a dribble or two. And, you know, even even the best passers, it can be really tough to handle those doubles and make the right decisions every time. And it can be particularly deflating if you throw it away one or two times. Um, So they're really going to have to sort of get creative in getting him deep post position, not just letting him ISO with everybody sitting on the weak side. Yeah, that's interesting. not known for a ton of movement would you agree with that he kind of likes to just go to some of the bread and butter type of sets yeah you know they they run a lot of things you see traditionally across the NBA but I do think um, Tibbs in general does run a lot of stuff I think going back to Chicago they they are a coordinated offense in general um, at least compared to many other teams so they do have that going for them which sort of allows allows for when maybe you don't have as much star power on the floor for the ball to keep moving and you're able to manufacture ball movement that way you know ideally you want a team where they move the ball on their own and you get random and chaotic movement plus the ball movement Um, but some teams they just don't have that gene so you sort of have to push it out of them. And I think his teams in general have done that. But um, it, it gets tougher when your best player uh, is at his best when he has his back to the basket because that's really just an isolation. And so how do you work out of that isolation to get ball movement? You know, and that's always the question, right? It's, you know, if you're the Warriors or the Spurs or whoever it is, you know, ideally you can say, yeah, let's throw it into the Marcus Aldridge or Kevin Durant 45 times. But at what cost does that come? And, you know, Minnesota's going to have to figure that out with Towns. Well, 
I do think that the one thing about Towns that is underrated right now is his post game. We have not seen as much of that from him. But for me, and tell me whether you agree with this, I really have not found anybody in the league that I've seen have a ton of success guarding him in the post. Yeah, you know, I think he's uh, underrated physically, um, just from yeah, a strength yeah. standpoint. And I think um, one of the so one of the common things now you see across the league is uh, you you teams encourage sort of fours to post up uh, wings or ones on switches. You know, James Harden loves guarding people in the post, and they think they can clown him on the block, but he's actually stronger than some of these bigs trying to post him, so they can't move him. But Towns can move everybody, and so when you're able to move people, you know, there's a great thing Kevin McHale always says is when you have um, someone who's maybe undersized on you with your height and they might have equal strength the key isn't just to back them down with your yeah. back to the basket and, br- and brutalize them that way you have to start moving laterally and so you get them shifting so when you turn your body then that strength becomes that with that much more force and because they're smaller their, their point of leverage isn't as high so you're basically just going to hit them high in the chest and it's way harder for them to defend whereas if you back them down with your back to the basket just straight line then they can just sit down real low and use their quad and, and keep you from backing it down. And, and Towns is able to do that, A, and B, his ability to finish with both hands, I think is really underrated. And so when you can't play a guy to one shoulder or the other, um, you know, there's a common double teaming tactic where, uh, so let's say I'm the post feeder, or I'm guarding the post feeder and the ball is thrown into the post and my guy cuts through. And so I follow him, but as he clears to the weak side, then I whip around and come on the baseline and double team on the baseline side. And you do this when you know a guy likes to go that way to whatever shoulder and so the guy who's guarding guarding the post player will shade towards the he'll like move towards the high side and then the double will come from the baseline side you're encouraging basically to spin into the double and so the difference though with Towns is you can't do that to him because you don't know which shoulder he's going to go and so you can't really encourage him to go either way because he can hurt you in both ways so I think that's really another underrated aspect of of what he brings I think they're actually going to be okay offensively uh, without Butler I I think that they maybe they'll have a little bit more diversity at the end of games well they have been a relatively decent clutch team this year but they've got this is the one advantage of some of these somewhat bizarre personnel moves that they've made just getting all of this shot creation uh, to the exclusion seemingly of nearly anything else uh, except offensive rebounding uh, on this team they've got uh, Crawford they've got Jeff Teague even Bielitsa is a guy who's probably underutilized from a shot creation standpoint so I think they're actually going to be okay I mean if you look at some of their lineups without Butler they've actually been pretty solid offensively the problem though comes on the other end of the floor Exactly, and I, I totally agree with that. And they'll be fine, especially since Butler is not out the whole year. And even if he he does stay out for a little while longer than they expect, it'll be enough time for them to get back into a rhythm and, and sort of figure it out. But yeah, I mean, defensively, obviously they've struggled all year, and you know I think Towns has improved, and I think he's you know he has the physical tools to do what it takes, and I think he has. Yeah. What's he better at, level. by the way? Qu- quickly, you said he's improved. What's he looking better at to you? Um, so so there was a play which I wrote about. Uh, a few weeks ago but basically his so the idea of trapping the box which we've talked about sort of the primary help isolation a lot of the times he's just he wasn't really coming over in time because he was hugging up to the weak side and then when he came over he was late and so uh, you've talked about this on the pod before not with me but with Danny about how they've sort of encouraged him to just be more active and go for everything and sort of that activity level is putting him in the right position more often because he's pushing over more towards a strong side before the action happens so and then he's 
he's there in time. And so that ability, even if he's missing blocks and committing fouls and this and that, even if you're pushed over to the strong side, if you're pushed over to the strong side early, then the defense sees you and they're less likely to drive because they see bodies in the way. You know, we always used to talk about in coaching, see bodies, make sure they see bodies. So when you drive, you're thinking, oh, I got to go through three, four people versus, oh, I just got to go through one person. And I think he's really getting good at that. at sort of understanding that I've got to move over to the strong side or at least two nine in the middle of the paint. So everyone knows I'm here and I'm a presence. You don't have to be Rudy Gobert. You just have to be there. Yeah. What do you see from him in pick and roll defense? That's kind of been the other criticism in addition to not getting over into help position. Yeah, you know, I think he's I think he's better than people give him credit for. Um, again, active hands, pretty athletic, able to move his feet. It's just it's really just a timing question, and it's really getting the rhythm down of when you're supposed to keep moving forward, and then when you're supposed to start your back pedal, and then reading sort of the ball handler. You know, the best pick and roll uh, defenders from a big standpoint aren't the ones that are able to swallow the ball or necessarily block shots or this and that. The best ones are able to sort of read the ball handler and understand what his decision making is going to be in each possession so let's say I'm in a deep drop and uh, the ball handler comes off the ball screen and because I'm in that deep drop I see the roller getting free so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of egg the ball handler on to throw that little pocket pass early because I know it's available to him and easy and because I'm egging him on I'm ready to then slide over to get to the big on the pocket pass easily and so sort of having those nuances and understanding the strengths of the guys who are in the pick and roll all that sort of gauges whether you're you're good to great or you know okay to good and and I think making those improvements just come with time and experience and again the more you play in the league the more you play against the same guys and you understand the tendencies and so then it becomes a lot easier to guard yeah I had Jim Boylan on a couple weeks ago Bulls assistant and one of the things I took away from him is something that just even from playing at a low level myself and a lot of coaches including you talk about this is the idea of just being one way help and even in the pick and roll being in a way in a position where if you're forcing that pass you're there already in position to force that pass and then as soon as that pass happens you can be moving if you're in a position where you're going one direction and then the action flows against the grain of the direction that you're moving that's when it's really difficult if you can kind of be there and be like all right as soon as this happens i'm going to move here that mentally it can seem to, to help a lot more exactly there's a there's a phrase i really like which is sort of if you're guarding both you're guarding neither which is like if you're, just, <laughs> if you're stuck between yeah. the two then you're at the mercy of the decision making of the offense and and on defense you want to be the one sort of declaring to the offense you know we're not going to shut down everything but I'm guiding you this way and you only have one way and I know which way you're going to go and so then it's easier for me to guard you and then easier for us to rotate in behind and so really keeping that sort of planned sort of directionality for your team makes it a lot easier for everybody yeah and then uh, by contrast offensively I think the the best guys are the ones who can really force uh, a decision to be made with that big to take to say all right I'm going to engage you and force you to come over here and then you you can hit the the role guy but let's get back to the defense now for the wolves uh the stats without jimmy butler on the floor are ghastly they are 16.3 points per 100 possessions better uh, when he's on the floor per cleaning the glass 11.2 points per possession of that is on the defensive end now a lot of that however is just been bad luck to some degree when he's been off the floor teams are shooting 
11% worse uh, on twos outside the restricted area when he's on the floor and 6% worse on threes. And while he, he could contribute to that some, a lot of that difference is going to be luck. But nonetheless, he's still really the one guy who's an experienced quality defensive player in their starting lineup outside of Taj Gibson. And the numbers really when butler is off reflect that uh negative 3.6 net rating when towns is on the floor and butler is off and then if you add wiggins in to towns with butler off the floor negative 7.6 net rating and uh, the defense in both of those situations is pretty ghastly yeah you know the the thing that i see which is really tough as a coach because it's it's difficult for you to control but they're just they just don't do a good job of, of staying in front consistently and sort of having that uh controlled directionality of if you're going to beat me you're going to it's going to be a no middle drive right so i'm going to shade you away from the middle of the floor and yeah you might get a, a half a step or we might be hip to hip but you know that i know that help can come and they're just they're getting beaten too often and you know th- this is a thing that i always struggled with when trying to create a film session or how much do you just beat you know like beat your team over the head with we're getting beaten off the drill we're getting beaten off the dribble like they get it you know i can show you 15 clips of the same guy getting beaten off the dribble over five game period but what is that going to do to his confidence level you know how do i teach him to get better at staying in front and you know that that's that's sort of on a player to player basis but i think when you don't have the rudy gobert type in the middle where you can afford to get beaten off the dribble sometimes then you know it becomes much more important that everybody can can stay in front and especially across multiple positions and you know i think back to the chicago teams really everybody on the on the team that played rotation minutes outside of you know their the the random five eight point guard that they had playing backup was you know they could they could all stay in front you know Derek Rose at his peak athleticism could stay in front. Luol Deng could stay in front of everybody. Joachim Noah could stay in front of fours and fives. So, and if they couldn't, ability, they were at least sending the ball where it was supposed to right. go. And so, you know, I'm sure you know that that's something they emphasize. And and again, I you know I don't put it all. I you put it some on the players and some of the coaches, sure, but who really knows? And I think it just comes down to the fact that they're young and it's it's hard to stay in front when you're young because you don't know the tendencies as much of everybody. And I think hyperactivity can also lead to jittery feet, which leads to then it's you know sort of less stability like one of the things I love if you watch uh, Draymond Green when he guards he's just not moving a lot like he just the, you know a defender might an uh, offensive player might a little hesitation a little crossover you know body shimmer this way or that but he's really not shifting his feet all that much and then finally you make the move and he just slides a couple steps and he stays in front of you right and so I think when you're when you think you have an athletic advantage you almost get like over aggressive and over hyper on the ball and so then one little jab throws you way far the wrong way and then then you get beaten so i think all of that sort of contributes to this yeah and when it, some of these guys are, are vets too like crawford obviously has never been a, a good defensive player and they don't have a ton of physical skills either i mean bielitsa now started the three against the bulls i mean wiggins is the one guy you could probably point to in their perimeter group who does have the physical tools he's taken a few strides this year but still has a long way to go especially uh in some of his rotations as a health defender but uh you know i think it's interesting for these guys the biggest thing for me with butler yeah on defense having that one stopper against the other team's best player is important but then also when you get into their depth and with bielita starting at the three that's really you know he's not capable of guarding the best three uh, or, or the best wing threat on the other team so now if wiggins if the best wing threat on the other team is a three now you've got bielita trying to guard the other teams too which he's really you know at six nine six ten is probably too slow to do right. so that 
that's going to be an issue. And then if you bring in Jamal Crawford for Bielitsa, which is probably how they're going to close games a lot of the time, you know, that's not exactly your defensive panacea either exactly and you know so it's tough it's i mean 90 percent of nba teams are making that choice between offense and defense towards the end of games and really with your lineup decisions throughout it's very hard to find those two-way players and i think we've talked about this before but um you really only get you know maybe your top three or four players are two-way guys and then everybody else is pretty heavily leaning one way or the other um and so then it just becomes a question of well what do we need more and what do we play more and you know it, it at what point does becoming I'm not sure what their defensive rating is right now, but let's say, uh, what are they, probably like 25th or something in the NBA, right, I would guess? Um, Yeah, right right around there. I'll look it up while you're talking. um, So if they improve marginally from 25th to 20, like how much value is that versus becoming extremely good on offense and moving up from 5 to 1, you know, and really becoming so dominant there that the other team is more concerned about that end of the floor than they are about punishing you on the offensive end. And so I think when you have a dominance on one end then it sort of shifts the mentality of the opponent into what we need to concern ourselves with so much so that it almost helps the other end of your floor where you struggle you're perfectly right by the way 25th in defense per cleaning the gas but they have the third ranked offense in the nba and that's why they have that uh, plus 3.3 net rating um quickly you're familiar with marcus george's hunt from your days in the g league he's a guy who of all the guys they have outside of butler probably the greatest potential to provide some modicum of two-way play uh, on the wing he didn't play at all in that game really uh, against chicago the first one without butler he's gotten some spot minutes here and there but he gives a quick scouting report uh, on what you see from him yeah, you know, he's very strong physically, uh, moves his feet well, good defender, can shoot the three, but the biggest thing about him is he's a high IQ player. Um, uh, last year when he played for Maine, uh, Boston's uh, D-League team, they really had a three-headed monster of Jalen Jones, um, him, and Abdul Nader, um, who's obviously now with the Celtics, but the like Marcus George's hunt was the one who's sort of the captain of the IQ and just controlling the offense and defensively taking the best perimeter player, and so he, he has that ability. Um, now, athletically, is he there for an NBA team? You know, I mean, there's a reason why he's, you know, barely scraping on the end of a roster. But I do like him in terms of what he brings uh, mentally, and he understands the game. And he sort of had, like, I always thought he just had this calming presence on his team whenever he was on the floor. And so, you know, I'm not sure what, what he could contribute, but obviously, you know, I, I think he does have the tools to deserve a chance. Yeah, and I think they're they are definitely going to be searching here. Um, all right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. I want to talk to Dylan about the some proposals to allow younger players into the G League and, and how useful that'll be as an alternative to college, and then also uh, a few other things we, we want to get to right after this. So I used to read a lot of nonfiction books, a lot of stuff to try and improve myself, and. Well, I found them useful. I also felt like, man, I just spent 10 hours reading this thing or 15 hours reading this thing. And yeah, I got something out of it. But really, what can you take away that you're going to apply to your life? You know, maybe you'll take away 10 things, 15 things, if you're lucky, out of this whole book. And it doesn't really seem like that efficient to spend all that time when you're only going to have a few key insights. And so when Blinkist came along, I was fascinated. I almost had had the idea for that myself, not that I actually put it into practice. So I thought it was awesome. What they do is they give you the key insights 
of a book in a powerful pack that lasts just 15 minutes if you have a 45 minute commute you can get the insights from three books in the 45 minutes with blinkus they're constantly adding new titles so you're always going to get the most powerful ideas just a few of the titles they have available right now emotional agility by susan david the worry-free mind by bill wade and and carol kershaw ed just a couple of what they have available blinkist is spelled b-l-i-n-k-i-s-t and the way to get started with them is at blinkist.com slash capspace you can either start a free trial or you can get three months off of your yearly plan that's blinkist.com slash capspace that lets them know that you came from us and get you a free trial or three months off when you join today blinkist.com slash capspace so there's been this big scandal now with the FBI investigation, college players getting paid. Who knew? Shocked that gambling is going on in this establishment. Uh, but Mark Spears had a piece today saying, hey, you know what? Maybe these guys should go to the G League. They can get endorsement money right away they don't have to go overseas what are your thoughts in general i mean because remember now if you're an 18 year old coming out of high school you're ineligible for the nba draft the idea would be you just go play in the g league instead of college for a year and then you get drafted what are your thoughts on that type of an arrangement I think there's a, a fundamental lack of understanding on what it is like to be a G League player. And people talk about the difficulty it can have for a guy to go from high school to the NBA. You know, you got to live on your own. You got to cook your own meals, all this and that. Yeah. But the NBA team has resources to help you. And, you know, they have team chefs and they have, you know, a strength coach and they have all this. Uh, right now, I, you know, one of my friends in the G League, the strength coach currently for the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, you know, he, he He's not it's not like he there would be a strength coach on every team you know he told me that he doesn't think that every team has a strength coach quite yet and so you know can you imagine just going to from high school to the NBA or to the G League and then now that you're no strength coach and you know maybe you don't have the it's not that easy to get to the gym per se or you know it's not like an NBA arena where you can get in 24 hours maybe our gym's only open from X time to X time and it costs money to Uber there every time but I don't have a car you know and because I can't afford a car so it's this whole thing of the resources have to be increased for the G League for that to make sense. And there's a reason why right now the majority, the process for um, using the G League as development is teams having their guy practice with the NBA team, lift with the NBA team, do nutrition, whatever else with the NBA team, and then just play games with the G League team. It's because you can get all of that better at the NBA level. The G League doesn't have the resources for that. So for a guy to go straight to the G League, I think you're losing out on what the college resources are which are way greater than uh, um, G League resources are right now. So I think, yeah, going going straight, I think you should have the option. You know, I'm, I'm a believer. Look, you turn 18, do whatever the hell you want. But um, just know that, you know, here's another example, which is any road trip in the G League is a three-day event. So, you know, a lot of teams work on like a point system for lifts. Like you got to get, you know, seven lifts a month or whatever, eight lifts a month. And you don't get that, you get fined or something like that. So, but you go on a road trip and let's say you're flying from Fort Wayne, where I am right now, to Santa Cruz, well, we're just going to spend all day today flying, then the next day we're going to play a game, and then the following day we're going to spend all day flying back. And so you're just losing time, practice time, gym time, all of that. So all these things like just contribute to why I don't necessarily think that's a good idea until the G League is given the necessary resources. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of these teams now uh, have G League teams that, that are a lot closer, but even then you, you, know, you could be looking at two connections for a Fort Wayne uh, to Santa Cruz uh, 
for example, uh, maybe only one, but uh, still, it's it's going to take it uh, quite a while. Cause well, listen, listen to but, this one. Yeah. Listen to this one. So we we played Santa Cruz in the finals, and um, because at the time we were an independent team, and so our resources were were way less than the teams that had um, NBA ownership or you know co whatever it's called. I forget. Um, and so we had we flew from Fort Wayne to Chicago, then from Chicago to Denver, then from Denver to uh, San Francisco, and then we took an hour bus from San Francisco to Santa Cruz. And that whole thing took like 15 hours. It was like insane. And this was just for the D-League finals. So this is what it's like when you travel. Now, granted, you're playing a lot more games, teams that are closer, right? But, you know, how how many how often does a team bus same day there and back to a, a NBA game? Never, right? You would never do that in the NBA. But that's a thing that we did sometimes. We had a 7 p.m. game in Grand Rapids, which is two and a half, three hours away. We'd bus up on the same day and then bus back on the same day like it was college. So, that's, you know, that's just another thing that's you know can be really difficult for for these guys hey i wanted to talk to you a little bit more in a second about what it's like when the nba player comes down and has to be integrated into the geely team but my biggest concern i've said this before on the pod is all right even though there are these limitations in terms of development that you mentioned in the geely i I think it's still good to play with the nba three-point line nba rules you know probably playing against tougher competition than ncaa some coaches i think are certainly better in the geely league uh you know just learning what it's it's closer to nba basketball than colleges definitely but if you're an 18 year old and you know even if you're a guy who might project as a top 10 pick and let's say you go you end up getting assigned to the austin spurs well the spurs there's no way they're going to be in a position to draft you so and they have other guys there that they're trying to develop it doesn't really they have no incentive to help you develop to help you be as an 18 year old to figure out what it's like to not only just play professional basketball but just become a man develop you as a person and so i think that's really a big problem is there just isn't the incentive for a geely team at least as the structure is now to invest it in a guy when you know he's just gonna be around for one year and you know frankly pretty much any 18 year old unless you're maybe like two or three guys a year could actually contribute to winning basketball even in the geely league uh, if they were there yeah you know i think that's that's totally right it's um you know i i always enjoyed when uh first round picks got assigned and they thought they had you know at least when we would play them they, they would have this sort of like swagger about them like they're gonna come in and drop 35 and um and then all of a sudden they go two for 14 with seven points and they're like whoa this is way harder than i thought you know these guys are older you know i mean the league obviously trends younger but i mean they're still 26 27 28 year olds who are just physically so much more mature sure than your average 18 year old and so you know like you said that's you know that makes a big difference and you know I, I do think that it is possible it is just something that has to be worked toward but like if I'm a college or if I'm a high school player and I'm graduating would I rather just play for free for a year and get some development physically and and all of that or would I rather go to the G League and you know potentially not great circumstances with a team that's not invested in me and for an extra 25 grand uh you yeah because that's all you're well gonna I, make. I think and the biggest like, idea I think the biggest idea that, that Mark was saying, which is one that I agree with as well, you can at least like start getting some shoe money right now, or maybe, you know, your agent can front you a little bit and, you know, you, you could at least, you know, it's not going to be just straight up 25 grand. It might be, you know, a yeah. few hundred thousand dollars or, or maybe even maybe. if you're, you know, if you're a, a really a generational type of prospect, you do better. But then there's also always the hope of going overseas as well for more money than that. Uh, we'll see what the market looks like for that the next time someone tries to do an Emmanuel. Daniel Moutier or, or, or Brandon Jennings. Um, and those teams probably even have 
generally have more resources than a, a G League team. So I think I would be much more on board with it if you had a way to align the incentives for the team to really want to help develop this guy both on and off the court. But I think there's just a very big risk of someone getting lost in the shuffle with the G League team. Definitely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and maybe the, the solution ultimately would be, you know, allow guys to get drafted or signed much younger and have more of an academy European type of approach or just keep the system relatively the same at this point uh, allow guys to be drafted or you could just allow guys to be drafted right out of high school again or you just allow guys to actually get endorsements and and off-court income uh, when they're in the NCAA that would probably be uh, my model because the college just has so much going on economically I don't know if you're going to be able to completely bypass uh, college but yeah uh, so the last thing I want to ask you about is I mean we touched on this a little bit but just when you were in the G League when you would have guys from the big team come down and get assigned what was that process like knowing that all right you know we we need to integrate this guy into the roster uh but yet you know he's probably not gonna help us win as much as the players who have been here this whole time yeah, you know, it, it can be tough or it can be really easy, and it's really dependent on the player individually. And in my experience, I would say 90% of guys who got assigned understood the situation, were very friendly, were adaptive, and tried to learn as much as possible, and were not disruptive in any way. And the guys who were on the team, did they love it that their minutes were being taken? No. But they understood that this is what they signed up for by, by signing a contract with the G League, so this is sort of the situation. Um, but we, you know, really, it's it, it becomes easier when you get assignments from um, your own team. So as opposed to like the flex assignments for the very oh yeah, that was that was that. just crazy. I mean, so, uh, the the idea that like oh hey, you're from another organization, come on in here and uh, you know take take some minutes, help us lose some games, and uh, oh by the way, we'll help a, a player with another organization get better. Yeah, we had well when we were independent, we had 13 affiliates, and we at one time we had three assigned guys from three different teams. Um, all trying to learn new terminology and all of that. But when you have the same team, um, we would you know go to training camp, uh, or at least part of it, and our head coach was there the whole time, and he would um, adapt most of the offense, or at least large parts of the offense, to um, the G League, and we'd use the same terminology. So it wasn't a big adjustment in, sort of, in terms of learning plays or, or this and that, but um, just in terms of like you know the interpersonal relationships, the guys, you know, it was it's prof- they're professionals and they understood what was going on, and um, you know mostly. I had great experiences uh, with D League guys. I know one guy, um, Glenn Robinson, when he was assigned. Um, you know, a lot of guys will say thank you after they leave the locker room because they're going to go right back up, or maybe they're there for a couple days at a time. But Glenn was coming off an injury, or I can't remember exactly why, but he got a one game assignment with us, and he played 40 minutes and he scored like 12 points, and he didn't shoot it well, and he didn't really play very well, and we lost. And you know, after the game, he like made a point of giving a speech, pretty much a speech to the locker room, just thanking everybody um, for welcoming him and allowing him to come down and he understood the situation that you know this sort of put everyone in and you know I'd never seen anyone do that before to that degree and I, that that story like always sorts of sort of sticks out to me all right I'll leave it up to you here what are you more interested in talking about are you more interested in talking about Oklahoma City Golden State which you wrote a piece on or uh the Blake Griffin Andre Drummond dynamic in Detroit um well you know I'm, I'm more partial to the you know, two big post-spacing dynamics, but I think we can stick with OKC and, and GSW. There's a little more, uh, you know, a um, little more there to, to discuss. But yeah, so we'll go with that. Yeah, so I assume you watched the game over the weekend. You'd written a piece for yep. The Athletic 
Bay Area discussing why it was that OKC had given Golden State so much trouble. So what had they been doing and then what changed on Saturday? So normally when you play a team like Golden State or Houston or someone with a, a very explosive offense that changes your typical defensive rules, what you do is is you you change your rules, right? You say, you know, normally we're going to try to tag the roller and close out to the three, but because they're so dangerous, we're going to let the roller go free and we're going to hug the three-point line and if their rollers want to finish, they're going to finish. And while that sounds great in practice, what ends up happening is that your team is not used to this. So when it happens, you still sort of freak out when a roller is coming down the lane free, everybody collapses, and you get swing, swing, bang, wide open three. And so then you're getting neither thing, right? Instead of shutting off the three-point line, you're actually opening it up even further. And so what Oklahoma City is able to do is they don't bend their defensive rules for Golden State. And really, they play things the same way. They're always trying to tag rollers when they can. Um, they're always closing out to the three. They're high pressure in pick and roll. Um, maybe, you know, Steven Adams is a couple steps higher to take away the pull-up. But in general, there's nothing new. A guy drives. They come over with hard help, trap the box, sink, fill, X out if necessary. And, you know, they're doing everything regular. And, and sort of in that back-end two-on-one situation, so if I drive down the right slot and help comes from the baseline side, then the guy who's on the weak side has now got two two players so there's one shooter in the corner golden state will have and one guy on the slot or the wing and so i'm and so another defender is standing there straddling both players and because they're so long like they'll have a paul george there or a josh Hustis or a jeremy grant or somebody like that they're able to make that read and get deflections and steals and all that off that pass usually golden state is great at making that pass and that sort of initiates the ball movement and then you're you're pretty screwed as a defense but they're able to really make those passes difficult both with the pressure on the ball and on the drive so the passes are high arcing and then in that two-on-one read not only can they get deflections and steals but then they can x out and rotate and contest hard unlike most teams and so they're not doing anything different it's just they're able to sort of neutralize that aspect and i think the other interesting part of it is you know this is something you've touched on before about how steven adams because he's such a good offensive rebounder you're almost able to get offensive rebounding and transition defense at the same time because okc doesn't send guys as many guys to the glass because they don't have to but actually what i found is not only is that partially true, but they anyone who's sort of available to offensive rebound will go for it. And they might send two or three guys to the glass just because they have that free reign. It's not sort of a, a coaching thing, I don't think. Hmm. I think it's just, hey, if you think you can get it, go for it. And what happens is now that forces three or four Golden State players to box out or at least physically engage in the rebounding process. And so they get tips on rebounds and they get guys basically pinned underneath the free throw line. So instead of you having a clean transition break where guys are sprinting the wings, you're getting these long outlets, you've got a couple OKC guys back and nobody in Golden State running the floor. So then you have five guys basically sprinting out from beneath the free throw line as opposed to two guys from beneath the free throw line and three guys who have already crossed half court. So their ability to sort of attack the offensive glass and cause Golden State to concentrate more on defense and rebounding actually helps their transition defense as well. Yeah, I th- think that that's a, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, the biggest thing that I had focused in on, and you mentioned this, is just the, the OKC length, the intensity, the the deflections. Paul George, I think, had like five and six steals in the first couple of games. And when Golden State has over uh, turns it over, I mean, they are so boom or bust these days because their own transition defense is so bad that if they turn it over, I mean, basically any miss or turnover, that's been a 
essentially the difference between you know their kind of you know top five top eight defense this year and the defense that was you know top one the last three years or so is they're just not getting back as well defensively now and so if they're turning it over and then you look at okc a team that loves to just run it down your throat that really exacerbated a lot of their problems so i think that just avoiding the turnovers in that game then keeping okc out of their own transition and the golden state defense looks a lot better when the ball is going in and certainly when they're not turning it over is there anything else that you saw that really changed it in that game on saturday yeah you know the one thing i noticed which is is kind of small but um, I think with four minutes left in the third quarter, it was still a five-point game or a four-point game, and then Golden State went on that tear, and they were up 18, and OKC actually gave up four or five offensive rebounds in that span. Yeah, and by guards them, mostly, right? Yeah. yeah. And three of them turned into threes, and there's something that, you know, I, in film, when creating a film session, one of the things that I was always taught to do was you want to look for the cleanest examples of everything. So when, you know, a team runs a set and you want to show, okay, here are three clips of them running this set. You want to not just show makes of them running that set, but you want to show clean makes. So the ball swishing through the hoop and not just so it doesn't hit the rim and bounce around because it just catches the eye and makes the eye pop a little bit more hmm. and saying, oh, wow, that was that was smoothly executed. And I think there's an aspect to that of really confidence and team confidence of when things operate cleanly on that level, it makes you grow in your confidence. And I think that's when the arena gets sort of loud and crazy. It's like, oh, Steph switched to three. Oh, they got a dunk. And it's sort of these these clean eye popping moments, and OKC gave up the offensive rebounds, and then they gave up those sort of clean baskets, and not the sort of like oh you know contested the ball rattles around make. It was you know Nick Young swishing a three in the corner and shimmying. You know it's these little moments that sort of create that c- group confidence, and that sort of push the game out of hand. One of the things that was interesting about the second game these two teams played, which was an OKC blowout at Oracle earlier this month, Carmelo Anthony only played five minutes due to a sprained ankle he was better scoring than paul george and russell westbrook where i don't think we need to talk too much about the okc offensive struggles but a lot of that was missed jumpers and obviously golden state was more locked in but uh so carmel was the best of those three guys offensively in this game but how much of their inability to have the same effect defensively do you think related to the fact that carmel was out there uh i don't think really very much hmm. to be honest and you know i don't think yeah is carmelo the best defender of all time certainly not but they <laughs> They were they were doing a great job defensively for the first 34 minutes of this game and it was really that's that little third quarter spurt that blew the game wide open and to think that I think at one point Russell Westbrook and Paul George were two for 20 and they were still down five points really speaks to how great their defense was doing you know regardless of how bad they were in offense and the reason yeah, you know I what though I, I disagree with you a little bit I think Golden State really I mean especially Clay Thompson he was getting like wide open three-pointers in the first half that he was just missing I felt like and they, they had a lot Russell Westbrook I thought had a lot of errors uh, on Clay where he could have switched with Steph screening for him I, I actually was not as impressed with their defense maybe as you were uh not to argue but hey you know that that's what makes this, this <laughs> podcast interesting but yeah I mean but push back on that I mean what did you think was so good about what they were doing because I, I they did I agree with you the results they were stopping him from scoring but I felt like they didn't have the same sort of pressure if I did I'm not saying that's necessarily Carmelo and, and they weren't forcing the same type of turnovers and problems for Golden State as they had in the first two games to me to me it was there it was not that they like the, I thought the pressure I agree maybe wasn't as great but what made that more noticeable was the fact that they weren't getting the deflection count that they were getting in the previous games and so that made it feel like that the pressure was less 
pass, but to me, what the sign of a good defensive possession is, is you don't allow penetration. And I thought they were not allowing penetration really at all, and that allowed them to force a lot of jump shots, and yes, Clay, I agree, Clay Thompson definitely missed some shots that he normally makes, but even considering those, and then you get, you know, a not piss-poor performance in the first two and a half quarters from Westbrook and Paul George, then you basically have a tie game, right? You take those two things combined. And so, yeah, Thompson maybe wasn't great, but neither was George and Westbrook. So those two together sort of neutralize each other in my mind. And But I agree they were better in previous games, but they were still very good, I think. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I, I think we'll have to agree to disagree on that one, although I can't say I went back and, and watched the film. Uh, on Carmelo, you know, they didn't go after him uh, as much, but it is a, a difficult... Uh, oh, the, the other thing I thought... Uh, I'm trying to think, was that in the first quarter of the se- or, or the first half of the second half where you remember when uh, Golden State ran like the same play four or five times in a row? It was kind of like... Uh, bringing clay and kd out of the corner off a screen clay would usually cut back door and then they would bring uh kd yeah. up up to the wing yeah so um, this yeah the stagger out of the corner yep. yeah 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 why couldn't they guard that and i can't remember whether that was in the first half or, or or the second half but i think at one point they scored 13 points on five possessions running that exact same play every time well, I will preface this by saying that I think Paul George is the league's best wing defender, him and Robertson, and I guess Kawhi Leonard when he's healthy. But, you know, Paul George is an incredible defender, but he has this one bad habit of he shoots the gaps on screens all the time. Yeah. So because he's so long, he tries to sneak underneath to prevent the drive and then use his length to get around to contest. And when he's guarding Steph Curry, that's fine because he's actually long enough to prevent Curry. And, and Curry gets real frustrated. You can see it because he's open and then he catches it and then George is eight foot arm comes out of nowhere and then he still can't get the shot off even though he seems open yeah and so when he's guarding curry that's fine but against thompson and against durant sometimes he gets caught because he shoots the gap and then bang a three is open or he shoots the gap then they pump fake dribble and now uh george is in a trail position and now they've they've got the advantage and so i think that contributed to it and also as you were talking about so when you run that stagger screen out of the corner so you basically you have two screeners for one guy in the corner but the first screener who's closest to the corner can either peel back towards the ball or he can backdoor cut and so you really don't know what's going to happen with those bottom two players and so clay thompson would curl off the first screen and he would bump into the defender uh as he did that and so what that does is it mucks up the switch and so that switch is not as clean and then when you combine that with shooting the gap then the guy's going to pop open on the three-point line and so they kept doing that and uh, okc kept shooting the gap and they kept getting burned on that and so i think that's sort of what contributed to that play sort of struggling but one thing before we moved on um to mellow and all that stuff i did want to say that our discussion right there of sort of disagreeing on what we saw in the film is a classic example of why halftime adjustments are so difficult because you are looking at the game at one shot and you are taking notes and you think you see what's happening and then you go back on film and what you thought happened isn't what actually happened and so you're making adjustments based on your eyesight which can be wrong and so the best coaches are really able to see what happens and diagnose exactly what the problem is and fix it as opposed to us I don't know which one of us is right but one of us is definitely wrong about our <laughs> disagreement and so the if if the wrong one was the coach then we'd make an adjustment that's wrong and we're causing further problems and so this is why halftime adjustments really aren't as easy as it seems when you say oh they just need to adjust and do this well you're watching the game on tv and you can pause it and think about it and you don't have eight thousand things to think about and so i think that's a really good illustration of, of that idea all right, we'll talk a little bit about uh, this Griffin-Drummond dynamic in Detroit uh, right after we do one more read here. So I am one of those lucky bastards who has never had to have glasses or contacts 
but my fiance is in the opposite boat she's always had to have contacts and when simple contacts got in touch with us i I asked her if she wanted to do it and she said sure i sent her the link and she's like well this is i gotta do like five minutes here i'm like yeah that's right five minutes because they're giving you a vision test and they're letting you get your contacts off of that so you just spent five minutes you would have had to spend minimum two hours probably more making an appointment at the eye doctor's if you work, you'd have to take time off to go during the day because they're not open generally at a time when people aren't working. You just take that online self-guided vision test, which is, of course, designed and reviewed by doctors, and then you can get access to their unbeatable contact lens prices. Although you should still get a periodic full eye health exam if what you're trying to do is just to get your prescription and get your contacts. Simple contacts is just so much easier. That vision test is only $20. Again, much less expensive than you pay at the doctor's shipping of the contact lenses is, uh, is free and my listeners can get $30 off their first simple contacts order and you've got all kinds of options here you can go to the vanity url simplecontacts.com slash cap space or you can just go to simplecontacts.com and enter that cap space code at checkout easy remember cap space we talk about all the time here on the program simplecontacts.com slash cap space or just enter code cap space at checkout get $30 off your contacts and let them know that you came from us yeah so uh, what's the story in detroit now we did our 15 and 60 on them yesterday noting they had actually a worse net rating since griffin arrived uh than they have uh, overall uh, for the season uh but i i did note that andre drummond's numbers are are pretty consistent actually his usage is i want to say it's actually even a little bit higher since griffin arrived they've had some nice chemistry at times so what are they trying to do offensively to allow both of those guys to be effective you know i think as everybody noted uh earlier in the year uh detroit's sort of offensive makeover where instead of you know a lot of ball screen action they were dumping it to the elbows and running elbow action where you have either dribble handoffs out of the strong side corner or you run that stagger game on the weak side and someone's backdoor cutting or popping up to the ball and then looking for a dho to the weak side um and they were getting really good at that but then when you get Blake Griffin, right, yeah, you can do some of that, but you're not maximizing him unless you give him the ball in isolation, right? You have to do that on some level when you have a player of his ability. And so I think one thing that, you know, they're struggling with, but but improving pretty quickly, is that when Griffin has the ball in the block, where does Andre Drummond go, right? And so a lot of teams right now, when they have a post-up threat, he's generally surrounded by multiple shooters, so it's easy to just dot the three-point line and spread out. But Drummond, if he's you know, spaces out to the elbow or the three-point line, you know, that's, that's no good right because the, his defender is just going to sag off of him and double the ball with no consequence and so what teams used to do you know 20 years ago when everyone had a post-up center is you would put the opposite big um or the other big in the opposite dunker spot and so then what that guy has to do is he has to read the post player so if griffin makes a move middle then drummond who's sitting in the opposite dunker is going to sneak along the baseline to the other side but if griffin makes a move baseline then drummond's got to circle up towards the dots and so that what that does is because drummond such a good offensive rebounder his defender has to stay with Drummond as he's maneuvering within this post spacing and he's going to start to basically block him out before the shot goes up so what you're doing is you're basically getting your post ISO with the proper spacing and then Drummond is just sitting there for offensive rebounds to tip things out and get in the way and so I think they're really learning each other and as Drummond gets more familiar with Griffin's post moves he'll better be able to anticipate which direction Griffin's going and then he can get in better position for rebounds or little drop passes but maintaining that spacing on a string sort of like if you know middle to baseline and baseline to middle is really important and learning how to do that where is blake right now as a scorer and a post-up guy i mean to me he's still you know right up there in his ability 
And I think, you know, one thing that's undervalued is that he's never really operated on a team where he's just been able to post with four shooters, right? He's always played with DeAndre Jordan and now Andre Drummond, and that's harder, you know, because you're going to have a guy sort of in your space. And I think he's proven that when he's given the space, he can really kill you. And, you know, the other part that's it's tough is they got to learn how to operate pick and roll when Blake Griffin is in the pick and roll. And I think, you know, I don't think many people disagree that Blake Griffin's a really good passer. Um, and one thing he's really good at is when he catches that pocket pass and he throws that little lob up to DeAndre Jordan but now Andre Drummond has to learn the spacing and of, of that dynamic and so I think he's he's still really capable as a scorer um, but it's just the team has to f- just get used to the new spacing dynamics especially because Stan Van Gunny's always been a four out one in kind of guy and now they don't they don't really have that but I still think he has that ability now you know obviously you guys have talked a lot about the you know the length of his contract and will he be that level in in five years uh, you know probably not but I think for now he still has it I will humbly disagree with you that I and I think is a Efficiency with the Pistons uh, so far has been troubling that I'm not sure that he's there anymore as just a dominant force in the post and he is helped I think by the fact that Drummond is on the floor in some ways like if he's playing as a center or or in a four-out system then the other team can just put their center on him and I think he can't really score in the post against that center and he's not quite dynamic enough to beat that guy off the dribble and he's gonna have to take a lot of long twos if he's isoing against a guy like that but I think his lack of explosion to me is becoming a, a little bit of a problem if you look at his numbers and th- this may improve uh but if you look at his numbers since he's been a piston he's taking a lot of shots from floater range and shooting a very poor percentage on those i think he's like about 30 percent on shots from that range since he became a piston and he's taking quite a bit of them. i think the pistons are taking i want to say i'm remembering this from the 15 and 60 yesterday the third most shots from floater range since he came onto the team and they're 30th in the nba in percentage from floater slash post up range and i just i'm not sure that he has the explosiveness to really just like all right we got to double this guy like i think most teams now are at the point where they're okay just letting him go one-on-one and kind of living with it but you don't see it that way i take it no, I, I actually do agree with you, um, but I think it, it, like, let me explain it this way, sort of a nuanced difference, which is that I think he shows that explosion, but as his skill level has increased, I think he's now becoming too reliant on him being a skill player versus hmm. his just explosive athleticism. I think often when you watch him post up, he'll half spin one way, half spin the other way, go up and under. It's just like three, four, five moves. And then sometimes you'll see it, he'll catch it, he'll just go power dribble, power dribble, rise up, foul or dunk. And you do those simple plays you know or he pick and pop catch a three pump fake drive hard dunk when he gets that he looks like the old Blake Griffin but I think too often he's trying to you know nuance his way to the basket and sort of finesse his way in there and yes he's a very skilled player but it's not utilizing him to his maximum and I think that's part of the problem too you know and one thing I will say without being around him all the time it's really hard to know you know whether that's just because he doesn't trust his athleticism anymore as you as you suspect or you know because he doesn't have it or it's just because his skill level has changed and I think that's one thing that's really hard as players with player development is like when you get good at a skill then you want to just use that skill all the time but like yeah. sometimes you have to remember what got you there in the first place yeah need I mean you remember I think it was even two or three years ago now in the players tribune he wrote about like oh how come you're not dunking anymore and he kind of cited longevity type of reasons for that uh and so I mean I think the whether it's can't or won't I, I do think that at this point it's not happening enough those players 
power moves with the the type of undeniability that he used to have you know going back three four years ago yeah no i I agree with that and i think that i think that's sort of the you know the sticking point of like will he be re-energized by being in detroit or will he just you know sort of continue on this path that he's been which is still a very very good player but yeah is it the blake griffin of four years ago maybe not all right well i I think that'll do it for today thanks so much to dylan for joining us don't forget about our sponsors today as well simple contacts and Blinkist, a great way to support the pod. And Danny and I will return Tuesday night with the gamer. Got three really interesting playoff race games to talk about and, of course, catch up on news as well. Talk to you all next time. Till then.